Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Whatever happens, stay as cheerful as possible. How do you do that? Well, we'll talk about that today as we look into the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 19 through 24, and our ongoing series, Whatever Happens, through this wonderful book of Philippians. If you're able to sit down and open your Bible during this podcast, then take a moment to find Philippians chapter 2. And as you do that, I'll take a moment to share something else with you. These messages from the book of Philippians are now being made available in print form as blogs on my website, which is robertjmorgan.com. It's absolutely free. My associate, Luke Tyler, takes the message manuscript, condenses it by about a third so that it's in readable form, and adds an opening outline. And this outline, I think, makes it very usable for teachers and preachers and students who want to work their way through the book of Philippians or to share it with others. We plan to use this same format on other upcoming series. And so check it out, my blog, robertjmorgan.com. And while you're there, look at some of the titles of my books and the other resources we have and think about giving some of them as gifts this coming Christmas. I appreciate your support so very much. Well, how many steps are there to a happy life? I've decided that there must be eight because that's the magic number and all kinds of book titles. For example, there's one book, you can find this wherever you want to look for books, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. But the title is The New Eight Steps to Happiness, The Buddhist Way of Loving Kindness. There's another book called Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness. And another is called Beatitudes, Eight Steps to Happiness. And there's yet another book called Eight Steps to Happiness, Awakening the Inner Self in Pursuit of Personal Change. Well, there was one writer who tried a little something different. His book is called Eight Laws of Happiness. And then there's another book called Eight Steps to More Happiness, Eight scientifically proved methods of even more well-being and happiness. And if you want another title, The Busy Woman's Guide to Happiness, The Quick Eight Easy Steps That Every Woman Can Take to Find Happiness. And then there's a book called Eight to Great, How to Take Charge of Your Life and Make Positive Changes Using an Eight-Step Breakthrough Process for Fans of the Happiness Project. Well, there are more can you believe it? But it's getting redundant. Here is one last one. Eight Steps to Happiness, The Science of Getting Happy and How It Can Work for You. This particular book is by Dr. Anthony Grant and Allison Lay. I don't think that they have all the answers that would like, but they do open the book by summing up the problem very well. And I want to read you their opening paragraph. 
In this book, Eight Steps to Happiness, these two authors say, It's hard to be happy. It's hard to be really happy, to stay happy. People let you down. The fates are unkind. Life conspires against you. The world grows cold and vicious. Life becomes bleak and gray. Just when you think you've got it all worked out and everything seems in balance, that feeling slips away. Optimism and contentment dissipate. Anxiety returns. We get downhearted. We give up. They say it's easier to go shopping. It's easier to find ways to make ourselves feel good by buying something new or going to the movies or eating good food or drinking or getting on the internet. Other distractions, it feels good, but the hedonic treadmill, that vicious cycle of searching for material things to make us happy and ease our disquiet, well, it's just that, they say, a treadmill. Well, that's the end of the quote. It's a rather dismal way of looking at things, and yet we can all identify with it. I don't know of anything that we struggle with more, and I can say this personally, than psychological well-being. How do we maintain happiness in our lives? How do we maintain a sense of psychological well-being? Why is that so hard? Well, that brings us to the paragraph in the Bible that I want to analyze along these lines. It seems like a very simple, everyday sort of pedestrian paragraph, but there is more to it than meets the eye. So let's open our Bibles and read this simple passage of Scripture, Philippians 2, beginning with verse 19. The Apostle Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Well, that's the paragraph. Let's look at a couple of background issues. First, what is happening here? As we've seen in previous episodes, just when the Apostle Paul was ready to launch his fourth missionary tour, he was arrested and spent five or more precious years in various states of imprisonment waiting for his trial before the imperial court. At the time that he wrote this letter to the Philippians, he was either still under arrest in his own rented house in Rome, as we see him at the end of the book of Acts, or perhaps he had been moved to some holding cells closer to the imperial court rooms or the tribunals. He knew that his case was impending, but he also knew that the evidence against him was weak and really non-existent, and that he had a very powerful weapon, which was his official Roman citizenship. So, we get the sense from this letter that Paul truly expected to be released. He wasn't absolutely certain because with Nero in the palace, no one felt very certain about anything, but he felt reasonably comfortable that he was going to be released. And he told the Philippians that he was going to send Timothy with news as soon as he found out how everything would be resolved, and then he himself wanted to visit them as soon as possible. So this was simply a paragraph in which he was telling them that. 
Here's the second background issue. Who then was Timothy? The answer is Timothy was Paul's young associate. Five years or so later, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and said, Don't let anyone look down on you for your youthfulness. So if five years later, Timothy is still youthful, how youthful he must have been at the time of this writing. It's possible that Timothy had only been a young teenager, maybe 13 or so, when Paul unofficially adopted him and began taking him with him on his travels. And so my guess is that Timothy at this time is in his early 20s, maybe 20 or 21. But notice how Paul describes him in verse 20. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. He goes on to say, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Of course, Paul was using Timothy here as an example of what he had been discussing up to this point in his letter. Do you remember what we've talked about from chapter 2? Paul had told the Philippians not to look only to their own interest, but to those of Christ Jesus and have a genuine concern for others. He told them that they were not to argue or complain, but they were to have the mind of Christ. They were to have the humility and the genuine love and concern and sense of servanthood that Christ had. And now he is instantly going into this next paragraph, showing them in Timothy a living, breathing, true life example of that. In other words, Paul was saying in chapter 2, you need to be more like Jesus and have the mind of Christ and care more for his interests than for your own without complaining. And you need to have genuine care for one another. And as soon as I can learn the outcome of my legal problems, I'll send Timothy with news and, Lord willing, I will then come myself. But in the meantime, Welcome, Timothy, as someone who epitomizes what I've been trying to tell you in this letter. It is possible to live the Philippians 2 lifestyle. It is possible to live with the mind of Christ the way that I've been telling you. So if you look at Timothy, you will see a young Christ-like man whose example you can follow. That's what Timothy is, uh, what Paul is saying here, and I think that's one of the reasons that this paragraph follows as quickly as it does after the more theological and and exhortation or exhortational part of Philippians chapter two. So that's what this paragraph is about. In its simplest historical context, Paul was telling the Philippians that he would soon send Timothy to see them, and he commended Timothy and very tender terms as someone who was exemplifying the very qualities that he had been talking about. But there's something more here. As I've read this paragraph over and over, there are three phrases that have really, well, they have struck me. And the first phrase is built around this word concern, who will show genuine concern. Look again at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you, because I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out to their own interest and not those of Christ Jesus. Now, here's what's so interesting to me. 
The Greek word that Paul used here, as he wrote in the original Greek to the Philippians, is merimnao. That's the word that he used. Now, in chapter 4 of the same letter, Philippians 4 and verse 6, Paul says very famously, Do not be anxious about anything, or be anxious for nothing. The word anxious there in chapter 4 is merimnao. It's the same word. In chapter 2, Paul tells us, in effect, to be concerned. And in chapter 4, he tells us not to be using the same word. It sounds like a contradiction. But of course, even in English, the word concern can have a range of meanings depending on the context. And that's why we always have to read the words of Scripture with a mind to its context. For example, in English, we might say, she's going to tell us a story concerning her mother. Or we might say, she's always concerned for the needs of her community. Or we might say, she's very concerned because her daughter is in danger. Well, the word concern there is, it has a variety of meanings depending on the context. And so that's the way we have to look at it here in chapter 2. There is a good sense in which we should be concerned, and there is a negative sense in which we should not be concerned. We shouldn't be concerned in the sense of anxiety, but we should be concerned in the sense of offering genuine care. Now, the psychological balance between these two, between Philippians chapter 2 and Philippians chapter 4, is just a supernatural one. I don't think we can find this balance apart from the help of Christ. As we go through life, it's good to be concerned, but it is not good to be anxiously concerned. Be concerned for others, but be anxious about nothing. In my book, Worry Less, Live More, I wrote, The zone between concern and worry is a slippery slope. I've often wondered how to know at any given time if I'm reasonably concerned or unreasonably alarmed. It's a difficult median. But here's the key. When our concern is healthy in nature, it does not debilitate us. But when it begins to feel debilitating, it is morphed into worry or anxiety, which becomes a vicious circle. So I think what Paul is saying here is in chapter 2, we should be concerned. But in chapter 4, he is saying, if our level of concern becomes debilitating, then that is not from the Lord. Now, I'll admit this is very hard for me, but let's keep digging into the paragraph because there's another phrase that helps us a lot and brings even more balance, and that's the phrase that I may be cheered Verse 19 again, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you, that I also may be cheered or cheerful. We should be concerned, but not anxious, and we should be cheerful, but not naive. The biblical balance for psychological well-being is to be concerned, but not anxious and cheerful but not naive. This is a very helpful reminder to me because I struggle with these things. I think that I was born in the negative case. I was thinking the other day of 
a particular time when I was in college, I was in a very, well, I was downcast. I was moping around and depressed and discouraged. And for a few days, I had trouble getting out of bed because of despondency. And one day, my roommate came into the room. And he said, Robert, I've been studying the life of the great evangelist Dwight L. Moody, and you remind me of him. How is that, I ask? He said, because you're moody. Well, if you're moody, I want to encourage you to do what I've learned to do. Go through the Bible and find out what it says about the joyful or the cheerful life, according to the word search function at Bible Gateway. The word joy occurs 242 times in the New International Version, either in the verses or in the headings. And the word rejoice occurs an additional 177 times. The word blessed occurs 217 times. The word glad occurs 108 times. The word delight occurs 105 times. The word comfort occurs 71 times. The word celebrate occurs 68 times. The word enjoy occurs 57 times. The word happy is found 20 times. The word cheer, 13 times. The word merry, occurs five times, and so does the word overjoyed five times. You add all of that together, and it is 1,088 references to the joyful life, which comes out almost exactly to three verses for every day of the year without repeating any of them. Well, I can tell you from personal experience that nothing compares to searching out those verses and making a personal list of the ones that the Lord especially wants to give to you. Just write them down, put them on cards, memorize them, internalize them, and whenever you feel anxious or despondent, go to your cheerful verses and claim them. You know, you can do the same with any subject. Take fear or faith or anger or patience or whatever it is, you can select the subject that you most need to experience, do a word search in the Scripture, read each verse that you find in its context so that you're interpreting the words wisely, and then start compiling your list. This kind of a project may take an hour or a week or a month or a quarter or a year. It doesn't matter how long it takes, but as you go through the Bible— reading and finding the verses that speak to whatever issue it is that you're dealing with, you are building up an arsenal of scriptures in your mind. And then you have to find ways of keeping these verses at the forefront of your attention. Julie Chapman, an elementary school teacher at Chattahoochee Elementary School just north of Atlanta, was diagnosed with cancer. She had a very bitter struggle with it, but her students and friends sent her many messages, and they often included Bible verses. Well, Julie wrote down those verses on sticky notes and posted them on the walls of her house. She had the walls covered with verses from the Bible. She was literally surrounded with Scripture. Eventually, she compiled them all on the walls of her bathroom, and I've seen a picture of that wall. It was in an article in her local newspaper, and the headline said, For Julie Chapman, beating cancer came down to faith, family, and sticky notes. Well, that's the way one woman did it. We all may have our different 
methods. Crystal Whitten is a wife and mother in Tampa who, when she was in high school, loved to write out Bible verses in a creative style with Crayola markers, and she would post them on the wall of her bedroom. In college, Crystal studied graphic design, but as an adult and a wife, she got away from the Bible. Her mother was very ill and then finally passed away, and Crystal went through some dark times. She describes herself as being rebellious during that time period, and for years she had no interest in reading the Bible. One day a friend invited her to a Bible study that provided free child care, which was a pretty big incentive. And the study group had a particular method. They would read a book in the Bible each week. You can, you know, often read through a book in the Bible in a much shorter time than you think. So they would select a Bible, read through that entire book in one week, and then gather to discuss it. And so Crystal found herself reading the Bible every day and becoming reacquainted with it. It came alive to her. And one day she selected a verse and wrote it out in a creative style using hand lettering. And in the process, she found that she memorized that verse. And it was lovely. And she framed it and put it on the wall. And she said every time she went by it, she said it in her mind. Later, she found the verse in Deuteronomy that talks about having scriptures on the doorpost of your home and the walls of your house. And she started making more. And then she put some of these samples on Facebook. And now her hand-lettered Bible verses are displayed and sold in the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Crystal has a best-selling resource uh, entitled The Lettering Prayer Journal. And her work is on gift cards, tea towels, frame prints. She wants to help people surround themselves with Bible verses. Well, I love all of these ideas, but find one that works for you. Go through the Bible, find verses about joy and cheerfulness and gladness or whatever it is, and surround yourself with them and learn to post these Bible verses, most of all, on the walls of your heart. God wants us to be concerned without being anxious and cheerful without being naive, but we cannot do it without supernatural resources. And that brings us to the third phrase. I've talked about how Paul said Timothy was concerned and how Paul said he himself wanted to be more cheerful. But here is the third phrase which provides the foundation for it all. It's the phrase, in the Lord Jesus. Paul begins and ends this paragraph with this phrase. I don't know if you noticed it when I read through it before, but let me read through it again and notice how this phrase bookends this paragraph. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. He begins by saying, I hope in the Lord, and he ends by saying, I am confident in the Lord. And that's not all. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul wrote, 
and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 29, he says, So welcome him in the Lord. In Philippians 3, verse 1, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. In Philippians 4, verse, uh, chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, Stand firm in the Lord. This phrase, in the Lord, occurs nine times in the book of Philippians, and the related phrase, in Christ, occurs another eight times. 17 times in all, and this is Paul's signature phrase. If you could take all 13 of St. Paul's epistles and squeeze them together like a strong man pushing together tin cans and reduce them to one lump, to one phrase, it would be the phrase, in Christ or in the Lord Jesus. These phrases occur 216 times in the writings of Paul. Now, scholars have had a very hard time pinning down all that Paul meant to convey in the phrase, in Christ. What does it mean? There have been entire books written about that. It is the summary of all of Paul's teachings, but how do you describe it? Well, among other things, at least it means this, that when you are in Christ, you are no longer outside of him. You are an insider. You are inside of the love and the redemption of Jesus Christ. You are in union with him. The Gospel of John talks about abiding in Christ. It means your whole life is lived within his grace, and being inside is a wonderful place to be. The summer after I graduated from college, I was part of a gospel team that toured the Northeast. I preached in camps and churches throughout New England. And in one camp, my buddy and I served as counselors to a group of middle school boys, and one night we thought we would take them camping out under the stars. So after supper, everyone rolled up their sleeping bags, and we hiked about an hour through the woods to a very clear opening in a field, and we built a campfire, and we talked to the boys about the Lord Jesus, and finally everybody fell asleep under the canopy of space. About 2 a.m., I was suddenly jolted awake by water being thrown in my face. At first, I thought one of the boys was playing a trick, but everybody else had had the same experience because the rain was coming down in torrents. The boys all jumped out of their sleeping bags, and we rolled them all up, not the boys, but the sleeping bags. We gathered everything up. There was no shelter anywhere, and we had to hike an hour in the driving rain, and it was cold and miserable, and you can only imagine how good it felt to get inside that dry cabin into a hot shower and into a warm bed. Being inside is better than being outside in the rain. But today, so many people are standing out in the cold rain, outside of Christ, outside of peace, outside of the eternal life he gives, outside of his joy and his concern. Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 8, I am the door. If anyone enters by him, he will be saved. Well, if anyone listening to this is standing in the cold rain, I want to invite you to come through the door and to find yourself in Christ. It does not take eight steps, but just one. 
you have to say, I am coming into Christ. I am entering the door and receiving him as my Savior. When you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, he himself provides the foundation for psychological well-being. He helps you to grow emotionally and spiritually. He helps you to become someone who knows what it is to be concerned without being anxious and how to be cheerful without being naive. He helps us to be confident in the Lord. And that's why the Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So out of this lesson, this paragraph, let's pull out these thoughts and let's say, Lord, help me to be rightfully concerned without being anxious. Help me to be cheerful without being naive. And most of all, help me to be in Christ and not outside of him. Well, thanks everyone for digging into the riches of the Bible with me today. I'd like to ask you to share this podcast with a friend because, you know, the teaching of the Bible shares uh, God's encouragement from person to person as we just take that opportunity of letting other people know what has meant a lot to us. And so I appreciate your doing that. This episode was produced by Joshua Rowe and the marketing company Clearly Media. I appreciate them so much also. Audio editing is by Jared Brummett. Editorial review is by Sherry Anderson. Blog posting is by Luke Tyler. And music is by Jordan Davis and Elijah Rowe. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And may God be with you until we meet again.